0: Welcome to the Imposter Syndrome Club, I'm Jessamy G, I'm Alice Yeedy, and today we have
1: with us our beautiful guest, Alice Allen. Hello, welcome Alice. Hello, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. That sounded so daytime TV, yeah. <laughs> I was pretending to be what I think a host would say. Thank you for joining us. Alice is a poet and a performer and a writer and a million other things as well, a good friend, an amazing human being. Um... We are going to kick off, as we always do, by asking you to read your own bio. Um, take it away.
2: This is such a brutal and fantastic <laughs> way to start a podcast. Like, <laughs> what a great idea. Jessica, thanks
0: to Jessica.
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's an excellent idea. Melbourne poet Alice Allen publishes the podcast Poetry Says and is the co convener of Impossible Machine, an, imbe- an event combining poetry and improvised performance. Her books include The Empty Show, which was commended in the 2019 Anne Elder Award, and the chapbook Blanks. Her work has been published in journals including Rabbit, Cordite, Southerly, Australian Book Review, and Westerly, and shortlisted for the Blake Poetry Prize. Wow. How does that feel? Well, reading this again earlier this morning, I was like... Was I shortlisted for the Blake? <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> and being the co-convener of Impossible Machine, well, we haven't run that event since mid-2021. We only ran one event last year, so that is no longer really worth mentioning. Or at this point it is. it feels like a huge stretch to say I'm the co-convener of anything. The other things are true. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's just like that game, you know, like two truths and a lie. (laughs) That's how we write bios
2: now. Yeah. I mean, I do think the third person bio is just at bottom a ridiculous thing, but it's such a convention. It's so hard to get away from.
1: It's such a strange, like, I just find like everyone has agreed to not mention the fact that we all know that they're self-written. It's fucking
2: weird. Yeah. Right? Why would I talk in the third person about this these selection of achievements that I think makes me seem special and important and that I matter in some incredibly arbitrary way to some small group of people? It just doesn't.
0: It's an interesting, so when we were speaking to Sarah Firth last week, and we were having the same conversation about how funny it is writing in the third person when we all know we've written it ourselves. But she had a good point was there's a practical element to it in that usually or often when you're providing a bio, someone's reading it out. So if you've got like my name is Alice Allen, but like they then have to do the work to change the. Yeah. Yeah, they've got to switch it over into first person. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so I guess there's a practical element to it. But I'm interested as well, you talked about like, you know, the um, achievements that you chose to include in there. Is there like, you know, is there, a, I mean, that was a pretty impressive list of achievements, but do you think you have a criteria for what you put in there?
2: Yeah, and it's weird because it comes from this, these received notions of what's important in in terms of who I think would be reading it. So I'm imagining... The editor of a kind of fancy poetry journal who knows all those other journals, yeah. And I'm imagining, you know, poets living and working in Australia and wanting them to think, oh, okay, she's legit. Like, I guess, I, I better, you know, I can, I can give this work the time of day. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that I've done which is not as impressive or uh, relevant or interesting. That I'm maybe some of it I'm more proud of. Some of it I wish I hadn't done i'm not going to include any of that so this is totally fabricated
1: well it's it's almost like a it's like different currencies and it's like you've got it it's like well if you're going to the uk you're going to take pounds or euros you're not going to take your you're not going to take your south african rands they're not going to buy you anything there so it's kind of i guess that recognition of like yeah what's going to have value to the listener but it is it kind of this is a total tangent of first of many (laughs) tangents but basically it it was I was thinking this the other day as well about the the new convention which is like paying a photographer to shoot photos of you kind of like doing your job that Mm. people like share online so it's like like professional photos of you just kind of like looking like a professional person doing your work and it's that same kind of thing I'm like are we recreating like maybe the format was a few years ago, only very successful people had journalists to write an article about you and then photographers to take photos. And then we're just like recreating that on this micro level, like self-documenting mm. us doing our jobs.
2: Yeah. I just happened to be looking away and laughing at something off camera. Yeah, yeah and exactly. you just happened to snap me. And yeah. was like, oh,
1: was so charming. In my well-lit studio <laughs> yeah. dressed really
2: nicely with my
1: hair looking yeah. great.
2: <laughs> yep.
1: Yep. My sister's an accountant and I just, it's such a convention of the creative uh, inverted commas here, but creative industries to do this. And I'm just like, she would never just go to her job and then pay someone to document her doing her job all yeah. day. Just, just excelling.
2: Yeah. And this is why I think that a podcast like this, it should exist and should be very famous and successful because if you if as artists and writers and people who make things, we can't be honest with one another about what our lives are really like, then we just are playing on hard mode forever because we're, we're going to think that we're failing all the time. Yeah.
1: I love that, playing on, on hard mode. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, I used to buy the best Australian poetry and skip to the bios as the first thing that I did. I wanted to see how these people created their lives. I wanted to know what to do to be a poet. And I looked at those lists of places people had been published and I tried to emulate and copy that. But again, they're all fabricated. Like the, they're they're chosen specifically to give a certain sense of gravitas and and importance to that person. That's not what their lives are actually like.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah,
2: and I just wish somebody would have said that a little earlier.
1: I heard that there was someone pitched a reality TV show during lockdown that were because they obviously couldn't get into people's like they couldn't get onto an island to make Love Island or Survivor or whatever, and they were gonna just put GoPros on famous people's dogs. I would one hundred percent that God. show. That's exactly, that's exactly, it I'm like, I just want you like doing dumb shit how did this not get made i'm like this and this is the thing with other creators i'm like i've seen your work i know you're smart i know you're talented but like what is the other things that like give us permission to be human like what are you doing when you're just being goofy with your friends it doesn't you don't have to pick one identity you can be but you can be silly and smart and talented and ridiculous
2: yeah because Mm -hmm. the comparison is just so endless and yeah. so all consuming sometimes and that is where yeah. so much of this sense of the imposter comes from
0: could you tell us a little bit so i don't really know anything about the poetry world i'd love to know a little bit about you know about your story of how you you got into it and what it's what it's like in there and how imposter syndrome has shown up in your life in your time as a poet.
2: Mm. Arguably, I don't know much about the poetry world either. But, <laughs> um, and the reason I say that is because I came to it late, I came to it from the wrong place and via a strange path and those things kind of inform my sense of imposter syndrome is the fact that I didn't really start writing seriously until I was in my late 20s. Um, I lived and studied and worked in Canberra and we didn't move here to Melbourne until I was, yeah, about 27. And I felt like I was missing out on what was actually happening for about five years. I always had this sense of being five years too late to the scene. Mm-hmm. And this is very unfair on Canberra poets, people who live and work and write in Canberra. Those people are, are doing things that I didn't appreciate at the time and didn't take the time to go out and find out about I was just like no nothing here matters the only thing that matters is happening in Melbourne or Sydney and I'm going to go there and I'm going to figure it out once I get there and then the other thing that I didn't do was a degree in in creative writing or or literature so (laughs) making my own podcast has been my own self-education trying to figure out you know what who should I have read who who matters who influenced who how does the history work together and it's just been, you know, I've been making it for six years or something and I only feel like now I have some vague sense of, of how sort of Australian poetry kind of functions. Mm. But for so long I'd be sitting there with interviewees and they'd be like, oh, so, you know, um, Edgar Allan Poe, and I'd be like, yes, Absolutely. Mm. <laughs> So important. <laughs> we keep having yeah. a fucking thing. I know him from The Simpsons. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's amazing. So it was you create almost like creating your own syllabus, but almost like building a structure that could that could house that, and then like within that structure of the podcast, yeah, creating your own like education
2: yeah that was my line to myself and to other people was like I don't care if anybody listens I'm learning so much by doing this and that was true of course I care if people listen
1: we're like we're laughing at that as well because that's exactly our line it's like we do and it is it's, it is true and also not of like Yeah, it's an excuse to hang out and we don't care if anyone listens. But also, please listen and love us and give us approval and tell us we're special Mm. and clever. (laughs) (laughs) So um, just cycling back, so you started writing, you said in like late 20s, 26, 27? Yeah. Was there a, like, had you felt it building until that point and you just hadn't given yourself permission to dirty a piece of paper and actually write a poem down or... Like what, what catalyzed that?
2: Uh, it was a very specific event. So my whole life from when I was really young, people around me had said, you, you'll you be a writer, Alice. You you know, you, English is your thing. I got great marks in English all up and through year 12. And so I didn't write anything because everyone was telling me that I was already doing it. I didn't really write I didn't write anything. I'm not even going to put any caveats or hedging on that. I wasn't writing at all. And then I met this friend at uni who was writing so much. She was one of those people who did NaNoWriMo, but she also did huge, just, just thousands and thousands of words all the time. And I was... Um, incredibly envious and couldn't understand why I hadn't somehow written thousands and thousands of words. <laughs> and then I had this this horrible feeling of, oh, my God, I'm so late. I am years behind where I was meant to be because I thought we well, hadn't started yet, but people had started, <laughs> you know. People were well on their way. And yeah. I was like, "Oh, f- did we start it? You're yeah, like has someone <laughs> shot the gun? a yeah, Because like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to be a writer. Yeah. Obviously everyone's been telling yeah. me I'm going to be a writer. Am I meant to have been a writer by now? Oh, God. Shit. Is- <laughs> mm. <laughs> so then I started. Yeah.
0: That's really interesting. And I think that shows up a lot in um, all sorts of art forms. Like when are you a writer, a musician, an artist, is it when you get a degree saying this? Is when is when you book your first show? Is it when you just start putting pen to paper and writing? And I think everyone has really different perspectives on what that means and when that happens. Yeah. Um, and they're usually, like, unfairly weighted against themselves. So you might see someone that's just been, like, writing heaps. You're like, well, they're an amazing writer and I'm too late. But you could have been,
2: you know what I mean, anyway. Yeah, but I guess ideally you'd be writing at all. Yeah. Where in my case I wasn't.
0: Yes, yes. Well, That's <laughs> a key part of being a writer, I
1: imagine,
0: I'm no some expert.
1: writing. <laughs> is it? Do you think, and this is a half-baked theory that I'm just testing out loud, but, like, I sometimes think that there's a burden of being, that thing that happens when it's an identity is kind of, foisted on you at a young age that you then accept and I don't know what the chicken and the egg like you obviously display kind of tendencies in a direction or aptitude in a direction adults notice that they tell you and then it kind of is it's like yeah you miss that missing piece of the work versus the other kid who, who hasn't had that who doesn't have the same romance around like the identity whether it's writer or artist whatever they it's just not the glamour for them they're just showing up and doing the work and I think that a lot of times it's, it's a weird you've got to find your way back to that identity but via like starting really at the bottom
2: mm. does that make sense yeah realizing that you don't get extra points just because your second grade teacher said you were good at spelling yeah yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> it's not your destiny it's not you yeah. still have to
2: work for it <laughs> and it's funny too because the other thing I'm remembering is that one of the other things I really really loved more than writing was theatre Theater sports as a mm. sort of twelve or thirteen year old, and only came back to that, you know, in in my early thirties, which is how I met Alice here, yeah. and I had completely put that in a drawer. I knew that I liked performing, but it was very, it was a very secretive, a very furtive desire that I had. I, I would fantasise about, you know, being good enough at piano to be able to perform and being good enough at singing to be able to sing in front of a crowd or being in a play, but I never pursued it because I think, I don't know why, I'd, I'd stopped doing those theatre sports classes at about 13 and got caught up in high school and never really clicked in the, in the drama kids' world as much as I did. Like I felt so comfortable sitting there with a pen kind of writing an essay.
1: So how did it work then, like when you – so you're referring to to improv, mm. comedy. Mm. What was – how did that piece come into being? Like what was the kind of
2: – Well, they kind of came – it was the same year that I started making the podcast. It was 2016 and I was in London and pretty bored and looking for kind of anything – and, yeah, once I did my first class, I was completely hooked on it. But I also I think there was probably that buried memory of I really love performing, I really love playing in that sort of public space with an audience, and I hadn't admitted that to myself in a really long time.
1: Uh, are you going to ask something?
0: I was just going to relate very hard to what you were <laughs> saying. Because, I, like, I always enjoyed... I like attention. <laughs> like, to be perfectly frank. You know people are talking about their weddings like, oh, but I don't want to be the center of attention. I'm like, are you kidding me? I cannot wait to be the center of attention. But um <laughs> so I do school plays and stuff at school and I really enjoyed that, but I never like I didn't pursue anything that you could perform. Like I wasn't a musician, I wasn't an actor, I wasn't a singer. Um and interestingly I think doing but I always like so I used to work in music management or like you know arts administration so I was like I want to be on the sidelines looking in and I think I had that thing deep inside it's like I actually want to do what they're doing but that yeah for whatever reason not wanting to admit it to myself so it's like I'll just keep kicking around the sidelines and like hopefully some of your magic will rub off on me while
1: I'm here watching yeah
2: it's a classic move put, mm. put somebody else between you and the thing yeah. mm.
1: that art that that creative tangential just one one step off the field yes but I kind of that feeling of like not being brave enough to put up your hand to play but I, I it always felt like if I'm if I wait long enough on the sidelines there'll be yeah. enough injuries on the field that someone will call me in like totally. I'll like the day what maybe today and you're like no if you don't step out there like the uh, the hand of God doesn't descend and pick you up and put you on the field to play. Mm -hmm. Like you kind of have to do that yourself. Yeah. That's real scary. Yeah. It is real
0: scary. And I think that's a, I guess it's a trope that we see in media and stuff over time that like you're going to get your big break in X, Y, Z, because someone's just going to find you. They're just going to magically find you somehow. And they're going to come up to you in the street and they're going to say, I heard you humming to yourself, Alice. Do you want to come and sing in our band and tour the world? (laughs) How the fuck do we think these things are just going to happen? But we do, I think. And I think as well, like, and I do think it's a very Australian thing particularly that we don't want to put ourselves out there because it seems like too, I don't know, arrogant or overconfident or whatever. But if someone was to just find us Mm. well, then we can enjoy the success. Without having the arrogance of yes,
1: asking for it. It's true. The wallflower, it's like waiting to be asked for the dance, like you just waiting to be discovered.
2: Yeah, somehow it means more. Yeah. If somebody comes up to right. you. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. That's the feeling, isn't it? That I didn't it's like if you weren't trying. It. Yeah.
0: It means more somehow.
1: And I suppose then if you fail, it's not embarrassing because it wasn't you in the first place that yep. asked for the attention
0: yes that's a big one isn't it like if I don't ever properly try then I get to tell myself I could have done that
1: yeah 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 exactly that's every adult in an art gallery being like I could have made that (laughs) 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 yeah but you fucking didn't (laughs) how is it different like so with that idea of putting yourself out there so you've got these practices that kind of run Next to each other and are like entangled, but are also very different in the sense that, like, with a poem, it's you at home or in your studio. You can write it, you can edit it a million times. It's completely within your control. You choose whether you share it, you can craft this thing as much or as little as you want. Mm. Then, with your improv, it's you, it's on stage, there are other humans involved. So, that's a million variables. You don't know what's going to happen, you're not in control of it. Like, how do those two, like, those like opposing
2: forces yeah how does that how does that how do those play together Mm, I think I love that about performing collaboratively it's like it's nobody's really responsible for the results nobody can really take credit for it it happens and when it's good it's because you worked well together and when it's bad it's because you weren't listening but with yeah does that does it influence poetry i think the only the only way i can think of to answer that is that i will try to get away from being the authorial voice a lot of the time i'll try to bring in i particularly love using overheard speech because the shit that people say is just <laughs> way way better than anything i could possibly come up with and so i'll try to work that in i'll try to um Act a bit like a camera, rather than thinking how can I make the perfect iambic line here and, and make it line up. But but I guess I do both. But it is. I mean, it's exactly like you're saying, Jess. It's like then it's then it's your problem when it sucks.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, there's Act.
2: a bit of terror there. Yeah.
1: Act like a camera. That's, that's a really mm. beautiful image. How do you know when it's
2: a poem? You don't, yeah. Um, there's a great poem by a, a American poet called W.S. Merwin called Berryman. He's writing about John Berryman, who's another poet. And at the end of the poem, the speaker asks Berryman, how do you know if you're any good? And Berryman answers, you can't know, you can never know. If you have to know, don't write. And that's wow. how the poem ends. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I've got you on <laughs> yeah. And that's a misquote. <laughs> like, I, I fucked that and it still worked. Ah, <laughs> <amazing>. oh, wow.
0: <laughs> Do you perform your poetry?
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got to perform at the reopening of La Mama at the end of last year.
0: Oh wow!
1: How that did it feel really doing a
2: live performance? Yeah, it was fucking incredible. It was like I'm not I'm not going to mince words here because this is like the only private space left on the internet. But like, fuck me, it was. I got to do two performances that night. The first one, there were only six people there, and that was tough. Mm-hmm. The second one, it was full, and I felt so comfortable and so there, and the audience really liked it which helped a lot (laughs) at the end yeah it was it really felt like okay all right I can do this this is I know what I'm doing and I think I'm doing it well at least for now
1: how many readings like like tracking back to what you were saying about so you get to Melbourne and you're like fuck I've left this too late like (laughs) this was supposed to be who i was who i am and i've fucked it now and i'm trying to like overcorrect, but i'm you know i'm interviewing people and i'm learning but i've like the trains left without me kind of Mm, thing mm. and you know cut to last month and it's like you're in a room and you're sharing your words and it's landing and you can feel that like how did you and it's a really simplified question i get that but like how what happened between those two what was phase two well, it was between those yeah, two.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's important, right? Because I would never want anybody to think that that came in any way naturally for me or without just a whole bunch of flop sweat and and you know, crying um and stressing everyone in my life out a lot. <laughs> but yeah, it came it came really slowly. It came through First of all, rocking up to to open mics, poetry open mics, and just just sucking, just heart beating so hard that you could see it <laughs> through my clothes, kind of <laughs> like, um, but but doing it, and and I really bought into the line that comedians use about bombing, like you've got to have bad experiences, you have to go up again and again and again, and I didn't I didn't do that many open mics. Um, until I found improv and learned how to fail on stage, just catastrophically fucking fail, fail in a way that you think about for weeks and every time you think about it your body clenches in this way like, <laughs> I can't believe I fucking said that, you know, like, and you live and you realise that nobody cares. Absolutely no one cares. Um, yeah, and then. The other probably piece of that puzzle was again meeting another writer. In this case, a, a writer from Sydney called Louise Carter, who had all her poems memorized, and I watched her do a set up in Sydney, um, all from memory, like a ten-minute set. And again, it was that envy. It was just like, I'm gonna, I'm coming for you. You're
1: like, that's the thing. I have that's to.
2: Yeah, I need, I need to be able to do that. And then once I had memorized my first poem and performed that. At a, a little festival gig, I realised that that was a game changer because I didn't have that nervousness of like fumbling with paper or whatever. I was just like, I was there, the poem was with me and I could look at you as I was delivering it. Um, but, yeah, I mean the La Mama gig was like, you know, I, I am so grateful I got to do it. It was hell preparing for that.
0: <laughs>
2: I must have said that set. Fifty times, walking up and down the house, pacing up and down the house, you know, like, and just going. Well, uh, I think I have it, but I'm not really sure, and I might fuck up, and it might be. I have no idea how this is going to go. You know, yeah, I, I feel like I've talked for a long time. It has a long answer. I, love
0: <laughs> that. I, I could not be more interested. Yeah. <laughs> It's interesting as well, I think you've spoken a couple of times about this, about sort of comparison or or envy people, which can be negative, but it sounds like it's also been quite a good motivator for you. And now that you are amazing Alice performing on stage as the a big fan. Do you, is that something you still experience with other poets that you see? God, yeah. Or,
2: yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think... Look, and, again, I don't, I don't want to mince words because, like, what's the point, but or um, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Like I don't want to talk myself down when I don't really believe it, like be falsely oh. humble or something like that.
1: Oh, there's um, disingenuous. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Um, I think I'm pretty good at reading my poems. I don't know that my poems are as good as, you know, 80% of the people out there working today. And that's, that's still hard. You know, I went to a reading on Sunday night and there was um, wonderful, wonderful Melbourne poet Melinda Bufton performed and every single line of hers I wish I'd written, you know. Like she's naturally hilarious and and original in a way that, you know, I feel like I can't get out of my my own brain and my own kind of like patterns enough to I couldn't come up with a single line like she does. I went to uh, the launch of of another poet, um, Gareth Morgan, who's just, again, just unspeakably brilliant and super young. (laughs) And uh, yeah, like he's just going to be, I feel like he's part of a totally new school of poetry that's moving through now that, that I'll, you know, even if I wanted to, I can't be part of that because... Yeah, and they're they're a different generation. They're like, I feel like they're the inheritors of a generation that that is above me. You know, and this, they're kind of zeitgeist. guys. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And so that's, I guess, you know, I, in a way, like the train did leave the station, and now I'm at the station, and there's like another train pulling off. I'm like, you guys look pretty cool. <laughs> so, yeah, there's. I try not to let it consume me in the way that it used to. It used the envy used to be really toxic with me and now I try to sort of keep it at a level where it's like okay well use it as motivation or maybe tell them that you like their work as well because maybe no one else is saying that because everyone else is also envious yeah. and trying to find a reason to hate them you know
1: oh. <laughs> so. <laughs> Andy, it's so hearing you speak about comparison like that I feel like that used to and actually still is probably feels like this like deep dark secret of this little like hard piece of coal that I have in my ribcage where it's like that is the thing that I feel so ashamed about when I'm envious of other often, usually women I think like envy usually also operates when there's enough similar yeah mm, yeah you, you have to feel like over. yeah, yeah. That, like it, it could in your mind it could have or should have you at some point missed that opportunity and now you're watching someone else have this echo of a life that might have been yours
2: yeah if I'd started writing in 19 maybe I could have been Gareth
1: this is this is the thing and it's it's just I start around being like oh
2: I'll be a writer one day
1: yeah I'm like (laughs) if I hadn't spent all that time like making sure that I looked like an artist (laughs) I just made the art completely but I think it's it's such a relief like hearing other people say it and it's it's a thing that I've realized now I'm like the way for me anyway like out of envy is through my hands like the second I notice that I'm feeling it I'm like you are not making what you need to. exactly be yeah yeah
2: the and poets that's... I know who don't feel envy are the poets who are working yeah working and doing the thing
1: and then yeah, and yeah. then it kind of opens it up where even then you encounter someone's work and it's amazing And it's just saying you're like every word of that is perfect and I you know kind of it's ex- almost exactly the same thought you're like I wish I could I fucking would kill to write those words or draw that or create that just the texture of it is so different I'm mm. like if my hands have made a thing then I know that that was theirs to make and I'm making what's mine to make and yeah. those things are different and that's fine but mm. if my hands haven't made the thing then that it's just it's like a ice an icicle yeah. in my heart and then there's the added layer of shame and I'm like I'm a terrible person. <laughs>
0: I've always said that about you. Yeah, I
1: know. (laughs) (laughs) you tweeted it right now.
0: (laughs) It's an interesting thing and I I can't imagine there is one creative person in the world who hasn't suffered from comparison and envy and I don't know because it's also part of the process, right, is comparing your work to other people to see where you're at and learn from it and stuff. I feel like it's kind of an important part of a, a creative process but I think at times where it's quelled a little bit has been where I feel like I've found, like, a style or something that is characteristically me. So it matters less now if it's better or worse because it's very, it's because it's Jessamy G's work. So it's harder to compare. And I think that took, you think of, like, illustration, graphic recording work, I reckon it took me about seven years to find a style that I was, like, Oh, I'm confident that someone could look at that now and be like that's Jessamy's work and it was less about it being like feeling like it was good and more about feeling like it was recognizably me yeah. that started to quell that
2: you
1: compassion. shared an amazing video the other day where you had like a time lapse of your early illustration work and how that shifted into your recent work and I thought it was such a cool generous thing to share because it just was like watching you find that style and it is now I mean I knew your work before I moved to Australia and it is it's very exact it's you it's 100% you it's beautiful it's elegant and minimal and it's got a simplicity but a sophistication it's amazing but watching it like watching that start to bubble up through the early work was it was firstly really satisfying visually to watch but also I thought really generous thing to share.
0: Yeah, thanks Alice. And it was like it's it brings me pain to watch it. Like, <laughs> you know, but like, oh it's so shit. But because like the story worked out okay. I didn't <laughs> like, you want know, to I know the ending, it's fine. It all works out. But um like you were saying at the start Alice, I think it's really important that we like show all the bits to each other as creative mm. people because it's easy to look at someone's work or someone's poetry that's been all of that. they've done all of the shit bits already. You just don't necessarily see all that, all that working out. Um, I had a question that now has now left my brain. Do you think that there's something that's characteristically Alice about your poetry?
2: Mm. If there is, I probably couldn't articulate it, but it's interesting what you were just saying before about, finding that in your own work because I think, again, going back to Encountering Lou's poetry, one of the things I really felt about her work was, oh, she's making no apologies. Like she is she's in these poems and she is happy to show you that she's there. Mm. Um, I, yeah, I'm still playing around with a whole bunch of different styles and strategies if I'm honest and um that's one of the things that like this is sort of tricky to talk about because I I don't ever want to sound like I'm down on my first book or in any way ungrateful to my publisher or like it's not a book worth reading but um (laughs) there is part of me sort of looks at that and goes there's too many things going on here you're trying too many different things it's uh it's a bit of a miscellany and, yeah, I I can probably point to the poems in the collection which I feel like are, are really me and I can definitely point to the other ones. Where it's like I was trying to sound like somebody else here. Mm. Um, blanks, the, the second collection, is much more me but I think I can take it further because, yeah, you're just constantly trying to get out from under. No matter what you're making, you're just trying to get out from the the weight of but it doesn't quite sound so good as mm-hmm. as this other person's work it doesn't quite look as good as the stuff I saw in the gallery
1: also it feels like one of those creative truths that we're very happy to accept for someone else because hearing you say that I'm like that feels like exactly what the work like any I never know how to say this word o- <laughs> <laughs> Right, but like your your work when you zoom out over a lifetime, that's exactly what a first collection should be, right? I mean, mm. no, should nothing should be anything, but you know what I mean. Like that yeah, is yeah. like mm. over the course of a creative trajectory, like that makes exact sense. And I feel like when you when viewed as a collection of work, like that will have that does important work to to start up, and then you can kind of go back and trace the genealogy and and see that emerging what voice or style yeah, or whatever, yeah. but I feel like when it's our own stuff, we don't want that. I'm like, no, it needs to come out perfectly formed perfectly from formed, the womb, yeah. 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 voice of a generation.
2: <laughs> like, no regrets. <laughs> I definitely don't know anyone who's like, my first collection was my best and always will be. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely a thing that you, you've got to do it and then get to the next yeah. thing essentially.
1: How... Yeah to to flick back to the improv side of things can you think back to a performance that stands out to you as the best or the funnest and and if you're all maybe maybe a moment in time and but what kind of made those performances work
2: yeah it's kind of the same thing it's just being wholly myself and I do just in keeping with the theme of the podcast like I feel really weird talking about improv because I haven't improvised in over two years and I don't know if I will again to be honest with you so it's kind of like that was a thing that I did I don't know if it was a thing I did just to get to the next thing or if it is something that's going to stay in my life so I yeah just wouldn't want anyone listening to think like I somehow thought of myself as some genius improviser
1: but you were (laughs) you were part of last weekend which was a series of performances in melbourne there's kind of they were amazing i don't know jess i don't think i don't know if you ever went to them they were behind long play bar in north fitzroy and yeah. you'd go through the bar and there's this little theater at the back this like hidden theater with yeah just like red velvet seats and i think you can see about 25 people maybe and it was once a month this kind of gathering of anyone could apply and just like a ragtag team of misfit performers, like it would yeah. just, it would emerge as this kind of beautiful island in time, this sort of performance, and you organised those for. Yeah. I mean, that, was, that was a while there. I yeah.
2: Think. Yeah, we ran that show for two years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and at points we were doing it every single Wednesday. Wow. So that was really wild. But, yeah, just going back to to answer your question, I think there were performances where I felt like myself on stage. But, again, most of the time I was trying to be someone else and, unfortunately, because of the nature of the art form, a lot of the time I was trying to be a tall, loud, funny man. (laughs) I am a medium-height, quiet-voiced lady who, you know, I can make some people laugh some of the time. So it's
1: like (laughs) that is the best pull quote. (laughs) It's like I can make some people laugh.
2: Yeah. So I, it was like starting over in that in that way. I guess I sort of was finding my voice as a poet, and I went back to be a a baby improviser Mm -hmm. and went through it all again. I was like, I need to be like this person. Was that a COVID thing? The the
1: the momentum or do you think that you would have come to a stage where like it had done the work that it needed to do kind of performance wise and you've it's added to your own performance of your poetry but like it would have come to a close or do you think it was losing momentum in lockdown and kind of now not wanting to to reignite it
2: yeah i'm really struggling with this at exactly this time because we're in a situation in Melbourne where it feels a little bit possible to maybe plan something again, but but do we want to? And I feel like a lot of people are asking themselves that question of like do, how much of my old life do I want to bring back mm-hmm. um, and how much do I trust that there's going to be a continuum that I can bring it back into? But, yeah, if, if we hadn't had a global pandemic, <laughs> then we would probably... Either we would have cratered or we'd be running our own theatre. Um, it's impossible to say. But I know that the break has been um, really, really hard and totally heartbreaking to lose that momentum. Mm-hmm. It's also been really important for me because I've been able to see the parts of it that were working well in my life and the parts of it that were just like super unhealthy in terms of just throwing good energy after bad. Oh. So, Yeah. It's a lot. It's
0: a really interesting <laughs> opportunity to do this sort of stock take, isn't it? It's like, okay, well, everything's just, everything paused for, like, two years. What do we want to press play on again?
1: Yeah. What do you, what are your, what are your ones? Ah. Uh, <laughs> not to put I you on know. the side. <laughs> <laughs> what talking about Mia? <laughs> I don't
0: know. I'm trying to, there's not something that stands out as, like, oh, that's something I definitely don't want to bring back yeah. i mean i think a lot of mine are just like quite boring and practical things like realizing that i can do a lot of my work virtually yeah. for example um now i would definitely realize that i don't want to do 100 of my work virtually because that makes me go fucking nuts <laughs> but you know things like being able to work with a larger variety of clients for different budgets and stuff because you don't necessarily have to travel to regional Queensland to do an event if you can potentially yeah. dial in virtually. So I think, you know, some blend of that will stick around. But, um, yeah, what about you? Anything
1: major? I, one, I mean, I'm sure that there are more. I think the one that jumps to mind is, just that is like, busyness. I'm really struggling at the moment oh, with, yes. like, I just don't want to be busy. But it, I kind of have drawn this quite problematic binary of, like, busy versus just nothing and I know that there needs to be a shade of gray in between that where I'm actually a functional human being productive in the world but I I just kind of I don't know what that looks like like I haven't Mm -hmm. I haven't seen me doing it and I'm really also just struggling to find like models of people doing it like there are there are examples I think someone Sarah who we spoke to last week Sarah Firth is kind of my golden example of that she's got an amazing I think anyway, from the outside, it probably feels different from the inside. But like amazing way of balancing that kind of like externalized creative energy and then her own practice and and kind of boundaries. But yeah, that would probably be mine that I'm thinking through.
2: Mm. And yeah,
1: yeah. What are your like?
2: Yeah, I really share that. Not wanting to go back into that insane overscheduled. Yeah, and I keep overscheduling myself, and then because still COVID shit gets cancelled, and I'm like, thank you, God. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again. And then the next weekend it's like, oh, yes, let's do this, 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 this. Yeah, my favourite podcaster and probably, yeah, one of the biggest influences on me of all time is a a guy called Merlin Mann, and one of his many um, great pearls of wisdom is I'm not busy. I'm just time constrained, which I really like. It's like, yeah, you just kind of. It's like boundaries, you know, you just, you set it and you're like, okay, I'm going to do this from this time to this time. I'm not going to fuck around with that because I know on the other side of saying yes, 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 there's tears, there's
1: uh, exhaustion, resentment,
2: Mm. massive resentment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've got a post that now that I stuck on my computer screen that just says, availability does not equal free time yes yes. and it's just or like it's the other way around free time does not equal availability because my problem is I sit with an open calendar and someone is like yeah yeah yeah, uh whatever you have plans on Wednesday night but that's completely different to like whether we should be going out for that glass of wine like whether there is emotional physical energy for that Mm. but I just kind of look at the calendar and there's nothing there so I'm like yeah yeah cool (laughs) Which I think is also maybe a hangover from from moving cities, and I don't know if you found that moving Canberra to Melbourne, but that that outset work that you've got to do to rebuild a social circle. There's so much of that like deliberate emotional labour in the beginning. I find it very hard to say no now to any friend related stuff. Mm, I'm mm. like, no, 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 I love you. Don't go. (laughs) (laughs) Worked so hard for this. How did you
0: go about finding your people when you moved to Melbourne?
2: I'm not sure that I have quite found them. You know, what's what's weird is like, because I've been here for 10 years or so. We moved here in 2011. Mm -hmm. My two closest male friends had moved here ahead of us, so we had them. Then my best friend from Canberra moved down. We've kind of stayed, I guess, in a lot of ways. The little, the crew is still the Canberra crew in a lot of ways. Um, Improv gave me a lot of intense friendships and intense connections yeah. not many of those have been sustained beyond the the um that particular hobby um which is no comment on you know the worthwhile nature of any of those people it's just that like we don't cross paths anymore um and poetry wise that's that's the thing that like i think is most worth unpacking on this podcast is like I still feel like a total outsider every time I walk into any poetry space and that is all my own shit but it is still so with me and on Sunday night the other night I went to this reading where Melinda read um and uh, another really beautiful poet called Shari um, I'd never met Shari before. I know Melinda relatively well. She's great. And then my poultry mentor, Bonnie Cassidy, was there. And so this is a space where, and, you know, I, the convener had, like, specifically said, hey, Alice, we're doing a thing. So, like, I was welcome. But I still spent the hour before I rocked up at the venue just super fucking nervous, mm. super fucking nervous. And then at the end of the night it was me, Melinda and Shari all sitting right next to each other laughing and kind of half crying about the fact that all our book launches got cancelled in the same week in March 2020. And it was this incredible philosophical moment and I was like saying to myself, I'm like, you are here. No one is shutting you out. There is nothing to be afraid of. You are welcome. So fucking... Drink it in, girl. Like
1: also like hearing you say that, I'm like you've literally published books. It's like, like yeah, but many... they're not as good as everybody else's books. <laughs> ah. Do you think that there's... Uh, and I'm I'm gonna try phrase this in a way that makes sense. But do you think that working as as a poet, part of what part of that job is being able to see. What is usual and what is habitual from a distance is like stepping outside of the normal to be able to re see the things that we've forgotten how to see. But that the flip side of that skill set is exactly, is. Yeah. Skill, do you know what I mean? Like the skill a hyper of being an outsider, but yeah. then you create, mm. and then you feel like an outsider. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like the people who hate people club. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's tough. Like, but it's also totally achievable. So one of my absolute idols in Australian poetry is a, a poet called Pam Brown. Pam's been working and writing since the sixties. And as far as I can tell, has always been a force for bringing people together, working with people, but also working. And she has that photographic quality in her work. She is able to remove herself, simultaneously remove herself entirely and also be completely inside the poem. But when I interviewed her for Poetry Says, I, of course, was super fucking nervous and we had a, a... I thought a pretty good conversation. And then she just like took me for a, a tea, you know, across the road because she wanted to. She didn't feel like she yeah. had to. She yeah. she's got zero self-importance and zero like oh, we um, you know, competitiveness or whatever, separateness from from other writers. Bonnie's very much like that too. She's just this force for like everybody come together. We like poems. But the imposter syndrome plus the um you know just the fact that arts in Australia is um, it's probably pretty fair to say chronically underfunded mm. um, just means that there is a, a competitiveness that seeps into to a lot of, of spaces and a lot of relationships. So yeah, at the end of the day we could probably be friendlier than we are. I guess that's how I would sum mm. that up. Mm. As in like there's there's no reason not to like and support each other, but we find reasons all the time. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Has the has the um or how has having a podcast for you like how is because you've got to reach out to people, you've got to put yourself out there, yeah, and ask them to come and speak to you and like how has that process been? How have you found that over the six years
2: and like how has it changed since you started? It's been probably the best thing I could have done for my poetry career. (laughs) Um, It really has meant that, and I've done it so slowly, I've started so small with, you know, exactly as you guys are doing, start with friends, start comfortable and and work your way up. Um, Yeah, I've, I've been able to interview my absolute heroes and people who I was intimidated by. And who have had me into their homes and taken me out for tea. Um people have just shown themselves to be incredibly generous and with their time and and with my, you know, questions of them, which sometimes are a little bit less informed than I would like them to be. That's yeah, another way that this all functions for me is I never feel ready enough for an interview.
1: but That was gonna be my next question yeah. is how does it feel before? Is it similar to going performing on stage is a different Um, texture of nerves like
2: yeah the, the nerves are there definitely nothing like getting up on stage but I'm always thinking like I haven't read every single word that this person has published and so I'm not worthy of speaking to them um but yeah I guess I've just realized that no one's expecting that of me I don't think if they are, they probably wouldn't come on the show. Yeah. <laughs> they're just gonna quiz you about their poems. Yeah, I have had I've had people turn me down, but they've turned me down in the way of like I'm not um I don't feel confident enough for you to interview me. Mm. I was like, what the fuck? Like, it's, it's okay. <laughs> I'm not like I'm just a I'm just a bogan from Canberra. Like <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it's also, yeah, it's not a
0: test. It's not a test, no. And are those, like, doing things like getting to sit down and chat with your poetry heroes, are they things that you can sort of hold in your heart or your mind somewhere when you do find yourself slipping into comparison or imposter syndrome and go, no, but I'm also the Alice, that interview XYZ poet that I love or had a tea with blah, blah, blah. Are they those things that bring you... Comfort or confidence?
2: Not really. Like I said at the start, that I forgot that I was shortlisted for the play. (laughs) It pretty much resets to zero, like really super quickly. And and I don't like the fact of interviewing those people is important is is super precious to me, but not in the sense of therefore I am somehow more legitimate. It's just like I'm just grateful to have had those conversations and to be able to meet them. Um, as people, as humans. And I think if the if the podcast does anything for good, it's that it presents these people who have always been a name and a bio and oh, a, a poem in Black Ink's Best Australian Poems or whatever, um, as a human being who says I'm um, a lot and who doesn't phrase things perfectly and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I hope that maybe what I can do with it and what I can continue to do with it is to just dismantle the idea of the the poet breathing rarefied air. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And this is sort of, I mean, maybe I'm just like super basic, but when I picture, if someone goes, picture a poet in your head, okay, they've got like a black turtleneck <laughs> and round glasses and a fucking beret, <laughs> you know, like you think of it as being this like very serious, you know, like, the height of, like, fancy, arty pretension. Yep. But, of course, like, everyone are just human beings that, yeah, that stumble their words in interviews mm-hmm. and have dogs and children and hobbies and um I think that's a real gift of podcasts in all contexts is we get to have different styles of conversations with all sorts mm-hmm. of people and see all their, you know, So I would see all their bits, but then I realised that wasn't going to sound (laughs) amazing. (laughs) That's the next part of this. (laughs) Well, we're we're probably coming close to the end, Alice. Um, I was thinking about this this morning. So when um, I was texting other Alice before you guys came over, um and saying i'm um, i'm making some costume things at the moment so i was saying oh, there, there's like bits of glitter and shit everywhere this will sorry
1: be unpacked
0: in detail <laughs> in a future episode that's a little teaser a little teaser <laughs> um yeah so i said oh there's, there's stuff everywhere sorry and then immediately said obviously i'm not sorry <laughs> like, but and then i was sort of reflecting on that a little bit and thinking isn't that funny like what i wanted to do was let her know there's a bit of mess around. I don't actually feel sorry for that. I just wanted to say that so that, you know, like to to set expectations. And I think there's um, particularly as women, we tend to say sorry for things a lot. And I, I really have started consciously trying not to use the word just anymore. I'm just emailing to blah, blah, blah. Just take, take the word out. You don't need it. Anyway, all this to say, I'm interested to know, as a poet, your words are your career, your life. How do you think the, the power of words shows up in how you see yourself and in your confidence seeing yourself as an imposter or not? Are there certain ways that words show up or that you intentionally use or don't use language in your life?
2: Mm. What a great and naughty question to end with. <laughs> I Before I came here, I was listening to myself on another podcast um, and I heard how many times I said, um, I heard how many times I said, I guess, and I heard myself apologize when I really didn't need to. Exactly as you're saying, I have, I have a habit now of going back, at least through emails, and removing sorry and just but they used to be there all the time. Um, I guess oh, there it is. Fucking hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even clock it. How it funny. <laughs> it's everywhere. <laughs> Words do mean things. Mm. They really do matter. And now I'm completely paralysed. <laughs> what I'm going to say uh, and they they let us down all the time. Mm. They sh- they reveal us. They let things slip all the time. Uh, as a poet, you have the luxury of total control. Mm. But then again, maybe you don't, because I look at some of my my early poems, which are published out there in the world, and think, wow. You really, really showed a lot of skin there. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's, I don't think I have a great way to, to sum up there other, other than to say that they're, they're very, very powerful things um, and they're full of imperfection and, and so are we and that's, uh, that's all we can do is just try to work within that yeah. very imperfect yeah. system.
1: I love how you phrase that, like, showed showed a bit, too much skin. I think that's a very, that's exactly how it can feel. It's very powerful. And
0: yeah. Anyone might think she's a poet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I spend my life quoting Alice to other friends. Whenever we go for a walk, she's got this amazing way of putting words together. Yeah, thank you. Also to say, like, on the record, just thank you so much for being your generosity and time and coming to chat with us and
2: thank you what a luxury visit
1: visit our baby podcast
2: i'm really excited for you guys like i think this is this is a great project and i really hope that it goes Viral. There are just not enough podcasts for women talk to to women. Like there are fucking <laughs> way too. Okay. There are too many podcasts. Obviously, there are too many podcasts. But there's still like if you look at the top ten, I don't know if you care to use this bit or not, but like there just aren't that many women talking to women. There's sentimental garbage. There's everything Mamma Mia ever made, which spew, and there's um uh there's chat ten looks three. That's it, as far as I know. I don't know, maybe I'm yeah, missing something, but the rest of it is no, just boys. For my...
0: Oh, um, Shameless. That's a pretty oh, yeah? popular podcast. Mm-hmm. It's two women. Cool. Um, but they just talk. They just talk to each
2: other. I guess there's Guilty Feminist too. That's pretty great. I oh, am. Yeah. yeah, but she's sort of more of a live show type person. Oh, now, I
1: to her show. With oh, me. really? Wasn't it with you?
2: Oh no, I don't think so. Cut that bit, yeah, <laughs> so, thank you so much. <laughs> Alex, it was
0: such a joy! <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank, so you. Much. thank you so much for listening to the Imposter Syndrome Club. You can follow us on Instagram at Imposter Pod or visit us online at imposter syndromeclub.com. Um,
1: write rate and review, that's what podcasts is. Like, Say? like and subscribe. Like yeah.
0: <laughs> Are we real podcasters now? I think we've got this. Great.